0: Same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we have ever dared hope. This truth has been absolutely evident to me as we've gone through this series uh, in Corinthians called Messy Grace. It's the first recorded letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and it's been absolutely true for me. Um, as Paul writes to his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, this is uh abundantly clear, right? Of the last several months. This has been clear. I hope this has been clear to you. There's this kind of, these two things going on, this dualism, just the fallenness and the messiness of mankind, but yet, at the same time, God's incredible grace. And so we've appropriately entitled the sermon series called Messy Grace. Not because it's sexy or because it's a catchy phrase, but because it's entirely appropriate. Messy grace, that grace is messy. Can I be honest with you and just very vulnerable to you? As we've gone throughout this series, I I could often relate to many of the things the Corinthians were getting up to. That's just the truth. Come on now. It really has convicted me, even as a pastor. Scandal, no? It's really convicted me. And I've understood that I can relate to these people, but at the same time, I've just been overwhelmed once again by God's immeasurable grace and his mercy and his goodness. I'll tell you why we still have the same problems that that the Corinthian church have. Someone said this once, that at the heart of the human problem is the human heart. And nothing has changed. Really, nothing has changed. The human heart is in great need of grace, God's amazing grace, and that will never change. Well, like another great preacher said, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, we love to quote him also. He said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> that's a true story, right? We get so offended when people accuse us of things or say things about us, but the truth is they don't know all the truth. Yeah, that's truth, and there's some more here that I hope you never find out. The fact is that we're in great need of grace. Now, it's a well-known fact that Corinth, right, was an incredibly licentious and pagan city, which of course sets the context for the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church was marked, as you know by now, by divisions and all manner of sin. All kinds of craziness went on there. But God. But God. I love it. When the Bible, whenever the Bible says but God, then God steps in. When He intervenes, things change. It's either but God, grace and mercy's coming, or but God, uh, a smackdown's about to come your way. But when God intervenes, something happens. And throughout this series, I've just seen a whole lot of but God. But God. And it's just glorious. Today, Paul, again, in this text, is going to deal with sin. A sinful issue that was just unbelievable. A number of issues. And he's going to speak quite strongly against it. But then there's this massive but God. This entire text that we're dealing with today hinges on this glorious and wonderful gift. The thing that we get to do called the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or Communion. That's what we refer to it as, and it is a tremendous gift to us, and everything hinges on this, and you'll see how the but God fits beautifully into that. So turn with me in your Bibles. I think you may have grabbed the text up front, but I'll give it to you again. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 15 to 22, and then 11 verses 17 to 34. We're jumping around a little bit. The reason for that is because Paul speaks in themes to the Corinthians. So they wrote him a bunch of letters. He's responding to them. More than like, he's picking up a letter, he's reading it, and he's kind of responding, and maybe he grabbed a couple of letters that asked the same question. We're not sure. I'm surmising yeah. But what we do know is that he doesn't chronologically necessarily deal with issues. And so he talks a little bit about this issue in chapter 10. Then he goes away, talks about another issue. Then he comes back to this issue in chapter 11, verse 17. Is that okay? And so we've kind of just put it together because there's one theme that he addresses in both of these passages. So if you'd like, you can turn your Bible to there. I'll read it in a moment. I'll just grab some water here. Just by the way, I got married in Pretoria, so. Alrighty, verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, let me just pause here for a moment. Throughout the entire book of Corinthians, there's a sarcastic tone in Paul's address to them. Because they claim to be something, and he comes back and he says, I'm speaking to you as sensible people. Silently, subtly, what he's saying, we know you're not sensible. Or your senses don't make any sense at all. It's gotten you into great trouble. And then he goes on to to say, judge for yourselves what I say. And the reason he also said it's possibly also sarcastic because they love to set themselves up as judges, right, in that community. And they were judging everything. I think this is right. That, I don't think Paul's got it right in this issue. And so he's going, judge for yourselves, sarcastically. But I also think, uh, apart from the fact that it's possibly a little bit sarcastic, Paul is actually appealing to them. He's going, please, guys, please be sensible in this issue. Judge for yourselves as we go along. Okay, Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. That's quite a hectic accusation, right? I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, why is Paul having such a full go at the Corinthians year, which is kind of the tone of the whole book as we've already discovered. Well, my first point is this. Communion is a collective act of singular worship that unites Christians with Christ and with one another. All right? It's a collective act, but singular worship to the one and only true God that brings a unification of the body of Christ, brings us together. It unites us not only with one another, but with the very thing that we are worshiping, the very person that we are worshiping. So idolatry has been a theme in Corinthians. Um, if you haven't picked it up, it's been an absolute theme, right? And Paul, off the back of just dealing with this, in fact, with the church, and what we didn't read today is the, the preceding passages where Paul was referring to Israel, and he's going, guys, don't be like Israel. They, desired, they followed their evil desires. They were idolatrous. They worshipped idols. And in verse 14, he actually leaves off by saying, flee idolatry. And then he launches into this passage that we dealt with today. But here yeah, Paul is going to deal with something that is very specific, yet incredibly significant in the way that they continued to exercise their idolatry. And so he's going to deal with a specific issue that was quite a big deal here, all right? Here's what they were doing. They were using their freedom in Christ, because Paul had already addressed that, hey, you're free in Christ— you're free to eat uh, meat that was sacrificed to idols, right? He said, go have a char. It's all good if they're selling that meat in the marketplace and it was sacrificed to idols and it's left over. Go and clear conscience. In Christ, we're free to enjoy that unless you cause someone to stumble. But they were taking that to the extreme. And so they were taking their freedom in Christ and using it as an excuse to continue to participate in pagan festivities and specifically to, in ceremonial and ritualistic pagan practices, now, that sounds a little crazy, right? At least it did to me. But here's the problem. That was part of their context and their culture. That was normative to them. They were like, hey, what's the problem? We come, we gather with the body of Christ. We partake in communion. We have a glorious time. We sing wonderful songs. We connect with each other. And then on Wednesday evening, I go over to that temple. We have a meet. We have some char. Uh, and they offer some stuff up. And I partake in that. And we have a good time. What's the issue? I'll be back at church on Sunday. And Pauline is addressing this in a massive way. And so he uses the two following things to describe precisely what they're actually doing, unwittingly. And so he refers to communion. That's why he says, hey... The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participate, participation in the blood of Christ? And he goes, the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? He's using communion because he's saying that the cup that we drink and the bread that we eat is our participating with Christ. There's a, there's a uniting that has happened. There's a oneness that takes place. This is not mutually separate. There's a connection that happens as you do that. It's an act of worship Communion, which recognizes and affirms and celebrates our oneness with Christ. We are united with Christ. That was Paul is saying. He's going, hey, have you considered communion? This actually happens when we do this. Now, it's interesting that um, they were practicing communion at that time already because the Gospels had not been written. Corinthians was actually written before the Gospels, recorded before the Gospels, so where would Paul have gotten that information from? How on earth did he, he know that what the Lord said about, hey, do this in remembrance of me? More than likely, someone had told him. More than likely, someone he encountered a preaching on this issue. Something happened, but he had a strong conviction of it. And it is very likely that they were actually practicing communion whilst he was in Corinth. That they actually did this from time to time. Because he's referring to it as something that they did. And he's using that to say, guys... Do you understand what happens when we engage in this? Do you understand our our oneness with Christ, that we are united with Christ as we celebrate this thing? Not only that, he refers to Israel as well. And as I said in the few verses before this, he actually makes reference to Israel in in not a positive way. He says, this is what they were getting up to. Don't do the same. Please don't do the same. Now he's referring to Israel and he's referring to the fact that the, the priests, as they... They offered um, on the altar to God, um, and the one and only true God, of course, as they went through that ceremonial process, they also partook of whatever they were offering to God. And so they were able actually to eat of that. And then it goes on to say that in doing that, they engaged in communion with God. They actually engaged in communion with God. So why all of this? What is Paul saying here? Here's what he's saying to them. He's saying your participation in these issues is not neutral. It's not neutral. He's going, do you understand what you're doing when you do these things? There's something, there's a motive there. There's a spiritual thing that happens there that you must be aware of. Now, when we think of the word demons, is that a word that comes up in conversation very often? I was having a chat to this demon this week. And I'm not referring to your boss, by the way. Maybe you are the boss. But in our context, right, in suburbia, we go, hey, what is this cultic pagan worship and idolatry and sacrifices? We don't do that in our context anymore. That's a foreign concept to us. Perhaps, maybe it's not. But in the greater South African context, this is something that's very real, right? Right? something that's very real, and if we're becoming a transcultural church, which is what we're supposed to be, then we'll encounter different things in these spheres all the time. And I'm going I'm to uh, take some liberties in a moment, but let's deal specifically with this kind of act. In the church, there's some things happening these days that is bordering, honestly, I think, on demonic worship. I saw a, a, a clip on, on um, social media this week, maybe we should just ban social media for good, um, of a church where a pastor called his congregants, a South African church, as far as I can see, forward to be sheep. And he said, you're a sheep. And they all got down on their um, hands and, and f- feet, they um, their four, like, four-legged sheep, right, all fours, a- and he said, follow me, follow me. And they're literally walking, meh, meh, nah, following him around. I kid you not. And I've seen some other stuff, right? Prophets of doom and all kinds of things going on. Can I just say this? We've got to be very, very careful. We think these things don't happen. But are we clearly distinguishing between worshiping the one and only true God, following this thing that he's giving us, the Bible, and actually submitting our lives to this thing? Or have we come up with our own ideas of what that might look like? Now, I'm going to take some liberties, as I said, because let's assume for a moment, I know Paul is dealing specifically with the fact that they were worshiping pagan gods. Okay, and getting involved in these ritualistic things. I get that. So maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never been exposed to that. I appreciate that. But give me some liberty, theological liberty here. Okay? Don't stone me. If I were to take this a little bit further, I was asking myself this question. What social norms, whatever your culture is, by the way, white people often think we don't have a culture. We do have a culture. And that culture is destructive very often. All right, The question we've got to ask ourselves is this. Whatever you are normatively engaging in in your culture, what, you, what is normal to you, is there anything there potentially that you're just constantly engaging that is actually usurping the worship of God, that is drawing away from God being the one and only true God? Is it giving you something? Now, let me give an example quickly. We do what we call dedication services right? If someone has babies, we do a dedicate. We don't even call it a baby dedication service anymore. We just call it a dedication service because parents, in a sense, dedicate themselves as godly parents. They say, hey, we're going to commit to raise this child in a way that points to Jesus, and then we dedicate this child to God, and we say, God, ultimately, I'm just a steward as a parent. You've gifted me this life. Give me the grace to raise this child in a way that points to Christ, okay? And then we give God thanks. Now, the Bible doesn't actually say we should do that. Did you know that? Did you? It's not a biblical imperative. You don't have to do that. We just do that as an act of community and love. There's nothing wrong with it. A lot of what we do in it is biblical, but the actual ceremony, the act of it itself, is not, not a mandate at all. And a lot of people, now why I'm going to this, add this weird power to it. So we have people that are part of us. They'll even go through our dedication classes. We'll dedicate their kids, and then I never see them again. For real. We think you're with them. And then you never see them again. You know what's in their mind? Hey, it's a thing I've got to do. I have to do this. Just so you know, God's blessing is on my child. It's not the way it works. This is about community. It's about engaging with the people that God has brought you into relationship with, right? And so we think this doesn't touch. We've got to ask ourselves, what are the things that we engage in that we have made that's something that it's not? Are you with me? We have to ask ourselves that question. So what are the seemingly harmless cultural norms we subscribe to that we've never questioned and I think we should question a whole bunch of those in our lives we mustn't be afraid of questioning those These practices also have horizontal consequences so there's a vertical implication Paul is going hey you're connecting yourself with something vertically here as you partake in these things but there's also a horizontal implication there's something happening around you in relation to people around you that you've got to be mindful of He refers to the fact that they were one bread One bread, one body, and as they partake in communion, there is an intimate partnership with each other. Whether we like it or not, we're connected with each other. Particularly, what we're affirming when we take communion is that we're connected with each other. All right? It's no longer me, myself, and I. It's us. And so, therefore, what you do matters. The, The general, what they call zeitgeist out there, which is the general kind of just belief out there, right, is... I live my life, and I can do what I want to as long as it doesn't harm anybody. Ever heard that before? What does that have to do with you? Well, actually a lot. What we don't understand is what you do in your personal capacity has a ripple effect into society. It does. Particularly in the body of Christ. What we do, even in secret, matters. It matters to this thing that we're a part of, the living, breathing body of Christ. So Paul is going, hey, you guys are engaging demonic worship, you're participating with demons, and through that, you come and have communion, you're exposing the body of Christ to that as well. You see the weightiness of this issue? Idolatry is evil in that it robs God of the glory due to him. That's the issue with idolatry. So what is it that you give Homage, you pay homage to, you give glory to, through you, uh, unwittingly maybe. Maybe you didn't intend it to be so, but what are the things in your life that you pay homage to, that you give glory to more than you do to God? It's evil in that it robs God of the glory due to him, but also it doesn't just bring us into contact with lower spiritual powers, but it brings us into subjection to them as well. You know what this fallacy is, you know, when you go to a, I don't know, tarot card reader or a, what do you call them, whatever they are, or a a witch doctor for that matter, Um, what is the assumption? That they are wielding this power, right? No, no, the power is wielding them. You subject yourself to something. Are you aware of that? We live with this notion that I'm in control. No, you're not. You either subject yourself to God, the one and only true and sovereign God, or we subject ourselves to other things. And those things exert influence and power over us. And so we must be aware of it. It's only in our collective singular worship of God alone that we can enjoy and experience the unifying joy and benefits of Christ and his body. And that is what Paul is drawing them into. Okay? You with me? All right, let's read on. We're going to jump down now to verse 17 of chapter 11. Is that okay? I don't know about Onay, but I come from a charismatic background, so immediate feedback is good. Okay? This brother gave like immediate feedback just now. I've got this card here. It's amazing, bud. That's the kind of feedback I want, all right? Only if it's good. If it's bad, you can give that to me afterwards. Is that right? So verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Let me pause for a moment. So Paul has just dealt with the fact that some of them are still engaging in idolatry, in all of this crazy pagan worship, sacrificial, ritualistic things. And he's using communion to say, hey, this is what happens in those moments. Don't do that. Okay? You with me? Now he's talking to the church that are actually engaging in communion. Right? He's not talking to you and me. He's going, okay, when you have communion, now he's addressing, and he's saying to the Corinthians... Guys, I mean, this is an indictment. He's going, you guys come into a fellowship, into a gathering, in a certain way, and you actually live worse. Ouch. Ouch. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And let me pause for a moment again. This is not what we call an imperative, a biblical imperative. Paul is not commanding that there should be factions. What he's saying is there's going to be factions anyway. In a sense, it's a good thing because what it's going to reveal is those who are truly surrendered to Christ, those who desire to follow him, to honor him, and to worship him, and those who have their own agenda and bring their biblical arguments because of pride and all kinds of other reasons. He's going, There's going to be a distinction that's going to be very evident because of this. Okay? You with me? Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Ouch again. That's even an ena right there. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, one gets drunk. You ever been drunk at a communion meal? Put up your hand, be honest. No hands, that's a good thing. All right. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I will not. Here's my second point. Communion calls for unity despite the realities and challenges of diversity. Calls for unity. Let me just say this off the bat. Off the bat. Diversity of any nature, whether it is race, culture, nationality, Socioeconomic, economic uh, gender, um, tribe, tongue, whatever it is, in and of itself, it doesn't have the power to bring division. Hearing me? It is distinct. God made us different, and that is a beautiful thing. Here's the problem. People in the world think distinction is a bad thing, so we're no longer allowed to call a woman a woman unless she says, I'm a woman, or a man a man, unless she says, I identify with being a man. The gender identity issue, right? You guys with me? Okay, we're not allowed to call race black, white, coloured, Indian, whatever. Why? Here's why: uh, the issues are not the actual distinctions and the differences. Here's the issue: the pride in our hearts that use those distinctions, those differences, to justify our behaviour, our superiority, our lack of love, our lack of humility. Are you with me? we got. I've got little girls, and they go to a preschool. And things have changed since I was at preschool. I know I look much younger than I am. Thank you very much. It's called Vaseline (laughs) Intensive Care. Okay? I should really be on a billboard for them. I'm 52 years old, for those of you who don't know. I'm just kidding. I'm 40. (laughs) But I grew up in a very different context to what my kids grew up in. My kids go to preschool, black, white, colored, Indian, doesn't matter. I don't see color. Now, if that was the cause of division, then there would be division amongst them. Are you with me? Now, their little evil hearts, okay, in time will become prideful, superior, impatient, you name it, and that might now become a distinction. That might become an issue of division. Are you following me? God has gifted us with diversity. We have a diverse people sitting here. It's incredible. That's God's desire for us, and we are different, and that is good. The problem is... When you set yourself up as superior or you don't care about people that are different about you. You don't consider why they do the things the way they do. Why do you think the way that you think? Yeah, the Corinthians could care less. For them, the communion meal was just a free-for-all. Have a jewel, eat as much as you want, and if you're rich, you get to enjoy it and get drunk. And the poor sort sitting next to you has nothing. Well, tough cookie. That's precisely what was happening. Now, is Paul fighting for socialism here? No, he's not. He's fighting for their hearts. He's going, yeah, listen, if you guys understood communion in the first place, that this is about Christ and what he has done for us, number one. Number two, that we're celebrating this as the body of Christ, irrespective of our diversity, that we're all part of the same body. Then when you're sitting at home in your very big home, and you've got a very big fridge with a lot of food. Maybe as you stand in front of the fridge, years what a heart surrendered to Christ will be thinking. Okay, I'm quite hungry. By the way, the communion feast there, it was a meal. It wasn't the same way as we do it today. They had a meal together, right? I'm quite hungry. Okay, I'm not going to go there and pick out. So I'll eat at home and then take an appropriate amount there to celebrate communion. Number one. Number two, what I would also consider is how much I take. If I have a lot, I know that I've got some brothers and sisters there that don't have. And so I'm going to be modest in what I take there so as to not provoke anyone to jealousy. Or thirdly, you know what I'm going to do? I'm still going to take a modest amount, but I'm going to consider the fact that I've got brothers and sisters there that don't have much. I'll take a few extra meals for them. Can you see that? It's a hard attitude that he's addressing. You see, communion is the great antidote for this pride that lurks in our hearts, this division that is knocking on the door constantly. None of us, listen to me, none of us, irrespective of your perceived superiority, stand eligible before God to partake of His wondrous mercy and goodness bestowed upon us by Christ. No one, none of us qualify ourselves. We are all in equal need of God's grace and His mercy. All of us, it is the great leveler, That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And whether you're rich or poor, you need grace. And we need one another. We need one another. See, Paul is not calling us to be the same. We don't believe in homogenous societies where everyone's like a cookie cutter. They look the same. There's no beauty in that. You know what the world longs to see? Think about every major religion. And I say this with respect. I think largely most major religions are built on a homogenous society. They look the same. They dress the same. They speak the same. They come from the same countries, generally speaking. Christianity, the church, should offer a very different picture of how we love and treat each other. All in submission to Christ, what unifies us is that we're all in equal need of his grace and his mercy. And so we can wrestle through our difficulties and our differences and our diversities and all of those things as we partake in this wonderful table of the Lord. That's the point. It's going to take some humility, it's going to take some repentance, it's going to take some introspection. But we must do it. Amen. I think I'm running out of time furiously. They said 12 o'clock. I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) It's kind of a nervous laughter that just went out there. Is he being serious? We're not sure. Okay, verse 23, let me move on. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. So Paul is quoting Jesus once again, and I'm going to make this reference again. It's just a bit of the- theology, all right? He's not making reference to a particular scripture because the scripture wasn't written yet. And So somehow this information must have come to him, which is just glorious, because he's speaking with a measure of authority that says this is true. He's actually quoting what Jesus said. So someone must have told him, Okay? Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, these are biblical imperatives. We must do this. Jesus himself has commanded it. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. My third point is this, communion is an act of obedient worship and thanksgiving in which we proclaim the death of Christ resulting in the life of the body. Just by the way, that song the worship team sang just now, Great Exchange, what is that? Goodness gracious me. What a song. What a song. Maybe we could sing that over communion. I'm standing. Here's the, the truth, guys. We're all alive because of Christ's death. The only reason you have life if you're a believer today is because of Christ's death. All of us. His perfect, sacrificial, substitutionary death saved us from the power and the penalty of sin and reconciled us back to God. That is a glorious truth that communion proclaims. The Lord's Supper is exactly that. They refer to it uh, as the Lord's Supper. You know why? Because it's the Lord's Supper. That we get to partake in—it's not our supper. We don't get to do it in which whatever terms we want to. It's the Lord's supper that He is calling us to partake in, to share in. It's His supper that we partake in. It reaffirms our eternal covenant with God and indeed with one another as the body of Christ. So, if you don't like me, tough cookie. I'm a brother in Christ. It's not laughter. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Maybe people are like, yeah, you're right. Think about it. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family, right? You've heard that? Well, I'm family. I'm family. And so are you. And we're family with one another. And I've lost my place now. Okay, what happens as we partake in communion? A couple of things. First of all, we proclaim his death. That's a weird thing to do, right? Celebrate the death of someone. But when you know what the death of someone means for you, you celebrate it. If his life was worth celebrating in his death, we celebrate it, right? It's funny, when you do a funeral, whenever you do a funeral, no matter how bad the dude was, he was always amazing. People are never honest at a funeral. That's true. The beautiful thing about Jesus' funeral is people were honest. The Bible is honest. He was glorious and magnificent and wonderful and should be celebrated. The bread broken was his body that was broken and the cup poured out was his blood that was shed for the remission of sins. And to establish the covenantal relationship we now enjoy with God. He did it. He finished the work. That's why he said, before he did it, he said to his disciples, Do this in remembrance of me. Something's about to go down, and you must remember what's about to go down for all eternity because this is your saving grace. I'm about to preach myself happy. I'm getting there. So, what happens when we partake? We proclaim his death. Secondly, we share in the benefits. We share in the benefits. The benefits earned for us through his obedience to the Father. We're not worthy to share in these benefits. Can I just say, I know we like to think so, but we're not. We're not. He has lovingly called us into a brotherhood with him. The Bible says that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, and we are seated with him in heavenly places. That Jesus would call himself in a sense equal? No, he's not. But the way that he relates to us is as a brother and sister and he loves us deeply. That's one of the ways in which he relates to us is astounding. Astounding. And we share in the benefits that he gets. He's like the perfect son. And dad gives him everything. And then he shares it with us. Any of you have brothers like that? Thirdly, We are spiritually nourished as we partake. We're spiritually nourished. Turn with me, if you will, to John 6. John chapter 6, verses 53 to 57. Okay? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Okay, if you're not church, this is your first time, don't leave. I know this looks freaky-deaky. Okay? I'll explain in a moment. Verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Now, that is not what we call transubstantiation. You know what transubstantiation is? And so the Catholic Church would believe that as the priest blesses the elements, that that becomes the physical body of Christ and the actual blood of Christ. And that can actually impart the graceful salvation to someone that partakes of that if they're not saved. Now we would not hold to that at all. That's not what we believe the scriptures teach at all. Calvin, not Calvin, Martin Luther came along and corrected or attempted to correct the Catholic Church, and he said, no, 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 that's not the deal. What is happening, though, is that the presence of Jesus himself is in the bread, on the bread, around the bread, when we take it, and the cup. We would also disagree with that, that Jesus' presence is not limited to any kind of physical elements. Some would say, well, this is just a memorial thing, so we just do it and we remember what Jesus did, that's it. We would say yes, but there's more to it. We do believe in the moment as we partake of communion by faith because you have the spirit of the living God dwelling within you. And God is omniscient and and, uh, um, omnipotent. He's all over and all powerful. That in that moment he can meet you absolutely in a very real way as you take communion and do something glorious in your life. We do believe that. Right? And so... He feeds us and nourishes us spiritually. I don't know about you, but I need it. We can't do what He's called us to do outside of Him giving us the grace and the power to do so. We must feed on Him spiritually, eat His flesh, and drink His blood. What does that mean? Feed on His sacrifice for us, His eternal commitment to us. Okay, let me move on. Number four Christ affirms His love for us as we partake communion. What is He saying? You know my death? You know what it represents? My love for you. You know the phrase that he pledged his undying love? Well, Jesus pledged his dying love. He died for you and for me. Not because we were worth dying for, because he is love itself. It's not the object of his love that makes this thing glorious. It is the source of this love that makes that love glorious. We are undeserving. Yet every time we come to the table, he says, I love you. He said, God, do you know what I've done this week? I love you. God, you know I'm still struggling with this. I love you. You know, God, I had no, not one thought, or at least good thought towards you this week. I love you. I love you. In 1 John, it says, We love him because he first loved us. The last thing that happens when we partake in communion is we affirm our faith in Christ again. What do we do when we take communion? As Christians, we're going, This is what it's about. This is what it's about. It's not about my own effort, it's not about my own sense of holiness, although that is important. It's not about my, my own pursuit of Christ, although that is important. It's not about my involvement in the local church, although that is important. It's not about my faithfulness to the Word of God, although that is important. Ultimately, it's about this, that he died and rose again. That's what it's about. And my faith is in him. Jesus said he is the author and the finisher of your faith and everything in between. That the work that he started, he promised to complete. And when he died on the cross, he said, to die. What does it mean? It is finished. It's done. And we must affirm that in our hearts again and celebrate that. Okay, I'm coming in for a close. Let me read verse 27 through to 34. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Sounds scary, right? Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Can I pause for a moment again? I'm referring to people that kind of just take communion as this ritualistic thing. They, just, they, they have no inclination to worship or serve God. They have no real understanding of grace. They just think, if I just do this, I'm okay. It's a dangerous thing to do, folks. It's a dangerous thing to do. Equally, some people come to the table and they're like, sin, schmin, whatever. God's good. He's gracious. Hey, let me have a char. No, Paul is going, this is a serious matter. This is a serious matter. Examine yourself. Let anyone examine himself then and so eat and, um, the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Can you see why we t- say to people, if you're not a believer, don't take communion. It's believers also that take communion, they don't consider the body. What are they doing? They have got no love, no compassion, no connection to the body. They're prideful, they're arrogant, and they come and take communion. Don't you understand that communion is a celebration of the fact that Jesus died and rose again, his body was broken, his blood was shed for the body. And then he causes us to be a part of this living body. So the way you treat the body matters. And so when you do it with that kind of a heart, you're on dangerous ground. Okay? Verse that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the, the, the world. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Last point, communion demands that we look up, look in. Look around and look forward. What do I mean by that? Look up. I love what um, Abraham Lincoln said. It's not yet. Yeah. He said, I can see how a man can look around him and say there is no God. But I can't see how a man can look up and say that God does not exist. We have to look up. You have to look up into the heavens. You have to look outside of yourself and understand the sovereignty of God. You must look to a just and holy and merciful God. We must look up to him, okay? And we must look to the God of the Bible, by the way, not the God of your own making. He is holy and sovereign and righteous and mighty, but he is also merciful and loving and kind and gentle, and we must look to him. So we must look up. Secondly, we must look in. And so we only understand who we are truly in light of understanding who God is. Why? Because we're image bearers of God we image bearers of God. It's in light of who he is that we understand who we are. And so we must look in. Consider your own life, your own heart in light of who God is. Repent if necessary and confess. That's always the deal. Repent. Confess your sin and cry out so that God might meet you. Go to the throne of grace. We can boldly go because of his loving kindness and his mercy. You say, God, I've repented over this thing a bajillion times. Repent. Confession is not about sin. Confession is about grace. God can't make his grace known to us outside of confession of sin. See, God doesn't get glory from you confessing your sin. God gets glory from you confessing your sin and him being able to reveal his grace. It is his grace that brings him glory, not your sin. So confess your sin, not only to him, but to others around you. And he will release you and strengthen you and forgive you. Number three, look around. Consider those around you in the body of Christ. And those who are yet to be reconciled to the Father as well. You know that communion, taking communion as a church is a missional thing, that we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. What we're saying to the world is Jesus saves those who surrender their lives to him, and he will return for his church. That's what we're proclaiming. It's it's a message to the world that, hey, Jesus came to save the lost. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved and reconciled back to the Father. That is what we're saying. And then what are we saying to one another? Well, Jesus himself said, hey... If you're going to to bring a sacrifice to the altar, right? You're bringing a gift. If you know, it doesn't even say you have an issue with a brother. If a brother has an issue with you, leave your gift, go make right. Go make right. There's some phone calls that need to happen, conversations that might need to happen today. Okay? Look around, look around. Lastly, look forward. Jesus... And his return will be marked with a glorious feast. Did you know that? That Jesus drinks. He says, I will not take from this cup, drink this cup again until that day. He's going to sip a wonderful cab salve (laughs) as we celebrate his return. It's going to be a glorious feast when he returns one day. And if I might use this very overused quote that I use too often by C.S. Lewis. He said, one day everything sad will become untrue. Jesus will redeem all things. As we take communion, we remember that he will come back. He will return for his church. He will make all things new. He will redeem all things for his glory and for our good. And we get to rest in that. Amen. We're going to take communion. I'm going to lead you in that. Folks, I'm going to ask you just to consider what I preached this morning. And if you've done that. Now, this is not a self-judgment as in I am not worthy. No one is worthy to partake of communion. We are qualified by the sacrifice of Jesus. But if your heart is not repentant, if someone has an issue, you have an issue with someone, if if you fit into those categories, I would say, hey, it's okay not to take communion today. Go make right. Go make right. Sit in your seat. Take a moment just to consider, Father, where do I need to repent? Where's some confession that is needed? Help me, Holy Spirit, to understand these things. And once you've done that, if you're a believer, go boldly to that table. Go and share with each other. Someone said this once as they raise a gate, until he returns. It's a toast. We celebrate his goodness and his mercy and his loving kindness. And if there's any difficulty or challenges in your life, I would encourage you. Trust that God will meet you in a profound way as you take communion. Maybe he'll do something special for you. I'm going to pray the band could come up and then we'll take communion. Father, thank you for your great love and your mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word to us, Lord. It's as relevant today as it was when Paul penned it to the Corinthians. Nothing has changed. Your truth has not changed. You have not changed. And so as we sit here in Pretoria this morning, we give you praise and we give you thanks for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his body that was broken, his blood that was shed, and what that means for us, Father. May this encourage and motivate us to live lives that would reflect your glory and your grace and your goodness. May it encourage us to unashamedly and boldly come to this wonderful table as often as we can to celebrate the fact that your death means life to us and that the grave could not hold you because you will return one day and everything sad will be made untrue. And we proclaim that collectively as the body of Christ. Help us, Lord, in our diversity to unite under the banner of Christ in a real and authentic and God-glorifying way as we partake in this communion. To the glory of your wonderful name we pray. Amen.